This yes. is hell. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. Colonial empires stole land from indigenous people worldwide for centuries, uh, over half a millennia, and still occupy much of the land formerly occupied by the indigenous. There are many who are now arguing maybe it's finally time we do something about this historic injustice. It's even likely that you may have at least heard about the land back movement, either through your own research, some media outlet other than ours, or maybe from the many guests who have appeared on our show and mentioned it here on the show over the years. But if you haven't heard or aren't certain what it is, the land back movement demands indigenous communities have decision-making power over land. Their goal is not to force those who currently live on the land to leave. They believe that indigenous governance is possible, sustainable, and best for all public lands. And on our show, Land Back came up most recently last month in early May when we spoke with Ashley Dawson, co-editor of Decolonized Conservation. Ashley summed it up as, it's a simple demand. Give the stolen land back. But giving stolen land back is not that simple for many who have benefited from that theft. Besides, no matter how much it seems like the right and just thing to do would be giving control of the land back to the indigenous people from whom it was stolen, I mean, that seems like even for the people who are the most hopeful, a fantasy, an impossibility, wishful thinking at best. After all, Land Back is a revolutionary, radical idea that has never been considered or attempted before and lacks any precedent whatsoever. I mean, was there ever a time when the world, especially the post-war former colonial powers of Europe and the West that continued to dominate the globe after 75 long years, can we even imagine that world coming together and putting the needs of the poorest whose land the powerful stole and gave them their power, putting their needs first. That kind of selflessness on a global scale by the wealthiest nations, I mean, it sounds like a pipe dream. But as our guest today explains, not only can we imagine it, there is an actual example in the not-too-distant past that shows that this can be done, that people can be put before profits. In a few minutes, we will speak with data scientist, writer, and historian Joe Goldie, who wrote the Boston Review essay, The Earth for Man, Redistributing Land Was Once Central to Global Development Efforts, and It Should Be Today. The essay is adapted from her most recent book, The Long Land War, The Global Struggle for Occupancy Rights, which came out in 2022. Joe is professor of history at Southern Methodist University, where she teaches courses on the history of Britain, the British Empire, modern development policy, and property law. She is also professor of quantitative methods at Emory University. Her earlier books include Roads to Power, Britain Invents the Infrastructure State, and The History Manifesto with historian David Armitage, in which they give their support for what is known as Big History. Joe is also the author of the upcoming book, The Dangerous Art of T. 
text mining, a methodology for digital history. She is a scholar of history who uses machine learning, statistics, and other big data methods to approach the traditional concerns of the humanities. Joe is also a coder and collaborated with ethnomusicologist Cora Johnson Roberson on Paper Machines, an open source extension for the Zotero bibliographic management software. Its purpose is to allow individual researchers to generate analyses and visualizations of user-provided corpora without requiring extensive computational resources or technical knowledge. You can find out more about Joe at joelgoldie.com. That's G-U-L-D-I. You can find out, or you can follow Joe on Twitter at, again, her name, Joe Goldie. Producing is Will Ippen. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show. Live streaming podcast host Chuck Mertz. Will, what's new about you, sir? I uh, just got back from the North Woods and covered in mosquito bites. Oh, sweet. Yeah. Enjoying yourself? It's a bumper crop up there right now. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the those early hatches are always, you know. Brutal. Brutal. Yeah, they haven't. Uh, the dragonflies just started arriving by the time I left, so hopefully that'll bring the, the locals some relief. Yeah, but also the dragonflies will bite as well. Dude, I've never been bit by a dragonfly. I've been bitten by a dragonfly oh. while in a boat while fishing. That sounds it was really brutal. Pretty gnarly. It took yeah. it took a while for it to actually. I, I didn't even know it was on me. I just thought there was some piece of string on my arm or something, and all of a sudden I felt a really bad bite. But you were right on Lake Superior, so wasn't the wind off Lake Superior taking care of a lot of the mosquitoes? Yeah, or? this was more. So I visited my folks in Wisconsin on the tail end of that. Trip. Oh, okay. And so they're um, kind of in the north central. Um, yeah, they're practically, they're, they're maybe a half hour south of the UP, um, near uh, Manaqua. Right. And so the uh, the the state bird, as they call it, is, uh, <laughs> is the mosquito. Quite thick. Is, yeah, it's quite thick up there right now. Yeah, in Michigan, they call it the Michigan Air Force. <laughs> I like that. So yesterday, I had a pre-op examination for my upcoming surgery, which is now less than two weeks away, and this will hopefully be the final operation in my 16-month medical nightmare that began with being at death's door, according to my personal care physician, a position that used to be known as the family doctor, but privatization, cutting of health care spending, and the corporatization of our health care system did away with those family doctors, pesky family doctors, a very long time ago, and then replaced them with PCPs which is weird. And yesterday, after weighing me, checking my blood pressure and the level of oxygen in my red blood cells, as well as doing a blood test and giving me an EKG, my doctor gave me a clean bill of health, which means in only two Tuesdays, I will be under the knife yet again for what we are crossing our fingers will be the final act in my far too long healthcare drama. Thank you to everyone. Thanks to all of you who have contacted me with messages of support. They are truly and deeply appreciated. I originally thought they'd just be annoying, but they actually did help, so thank you very much. And thanks for putting up with me talking about this the whole time, because it has completely consumed me. Whenever I'm not thinking about the show, or working on it, or here on air, it's really all I can think about. It's like having your own personal pandemic that only you are experiencing, and it sucks. So thanks again for putting up with me and my dance with death. 
apparently a side effect of all my health issues is also melodrama. So I got that going for me, too. Will, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what disease, disorder, or syndrome will Chuck come down with next? And we very helpfully gave you the the three definitions of what a disease, a disorder, and a syndrome are, so you can decide which you will be targeting. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, as always, wins their choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise they want. There's the This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, or the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie, or toque if you prefer, as well as the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it during this show at thisishellradio at gmail.com. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth, Will, what's Jeff doing during this week's Moment of Truth? Jeff pokes the body of time to find the spot to give it a good shanking. (laughs) It's disgusting. We are only a little over a month away from the This Is Hell 27th anniversary and listener appreciation party and art opening of This Is Art, the art show that always accompanies the anniversary and listener appreciation party. It all happens on Saturday, July 22nd, beginning at 3 p.m., 3 in the afternoon and running all day and night at the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. If you are an artist or know one or love the work of an artist that you think will be a perfect match for the This Is Art show that opens at the party, or if you are a musician or know a musician or appreciate a musician's music that you think will be a perfect fit for the anniversary party, Email me at chuck at thisishell.com. Share your suggested art artist or musician and a sample of their art or music. And who knows, maybe your recommended artist or musician will be featured at the party. Keep in mind, we take absolutely no commission for any art sold at the show. And we've been told we pay musicians way too much. Again, if you have what you think would make a great raffle prize or would like to suggest an artist or musical act to be part of the This Is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show, email us your ideas to chuck at thisishell.com. That's the This Is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show happening Saturday, July 22nd at the bar downstairs where I'm sitting right now, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. Coming up... Believe it or not, there was a time when the West was actually putting people before profits. And not only within the West, but they were doing it globally. Will shares more of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll tell you what's happening on Thursday's bonus podcast for Patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. And following this week's moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin, we will be announcing the winner of this week's question from hell. Live from the Nightmare of Want, this is hell. There was a time when the world was actually coming together to figure out how to end human suffering, how to end poverty, how to end famine, how to stop a system of haves and have-nots. And if it has happened before, you'd figure it can happen again. Even the wealthiest, most powerful states can work 
to end injustice. And a big step toward ending that injustice is land redistribution. Here to explain, data scientist, writer, and historian Joe Goldie wrote the Boston Review essay, The Earth for Man Redistributing Land Was Once Central to Global Development Efforts, and It Should Be Today. The essay is adapted from her most recent book, The Long Land War, The Global Struggle for Occupancy Rights, which came out in 2022. You can find out more about Joe at joegoldie.com and follow Joe on Twitter at Joe Goldie. Welcome to This Is Hell, Joe. Hi, Chuck. It's such a pleasure to be here with you today. I'm, I've been looking forward to this conversation ever since you told me that you're friends with Haim. That really, <laughs> it really solidified the whole thing. So I want to uh, shout, shout out to the whole city of Chicago, um, to the Urban Theory Lab at the University of Chicago, to uh, the historians at North Northeastern and Loyola and UIC, and the non-historians and urban activists at the Mess Hall and the hideout and all of those other places. I spent two wonderful years in Chicago a while ago now, and I learned so much about land politics just from hanging out with people who had been educated on the streets and in the city thinking about housing. So in some way, this book goes back to them. A lot of them are thanked in the very lengthy uh, gratitude list at the beginning of the book. <laughs> it's amazing. I bet that you struggled over that whole list of gratitude. I bet you thought, even when you submitted it, you forgot somebody. Uh, absolutely, absolutely, and I'm sure I did. And apologies to those of you who, who were forgotten. You're still in my heart. So you write that in 1951, officers of the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, the FAO, gathered in Rome to contemplate their founder's mission to serve the decolonizing nations of the world by helping peasant farmers maintain control over their own land. That same year, the organization had relocated away from its previous headquarters in Washington, D.C., a move away from the halls of power, but toward the emerging power centers of New Delhi, Cairo, Moscow, Beijing, Jakarta, and Manila, and symbolically, at least, toward Mexico City, Santiago, Antigua, and Lima. So the world was helping peasant farmers and moving away from the planet's major power centers, not finding profits for uh, multinational corporations that occupy those metropolitan centers of global power and dominance. They weren't focused on those multinational corporations' bottom line as much as they were focused on trying to help out peasant farmers. Despite these initiatives happening in a world enthralled with markets and capitalism at the time, how likely or unlikely would such projects be today, Joe? Is decentralizing power and empowering peasants and giving peasant farmers the power to feed themselves very much a dream of the past? Well, historians don't like to predict the future. And on the other hand, there's nothing that predicts the future like history. If you just describe how we got to the present and all of the sorts of things that have happened in the past, you've got about as good of a machine for predicting the future as we're ever going to get. Um, so, you know, I think you, you ask the right question. Could this happen today? We're living in a moment, uh, as you referenced in the beginning of the show, of land back movements, um, which are coordinated by international, uh, very sophisticated indigenous movements asking for the right to talk about what, how land law works and what you can build and what you can't build and how you can pollute and how you can't pollute. Um, those movements are you know, from my point of view, from a historian, we're living in a rather extraordinary moment um, that's probably unmatched since this period of time that I'm I'm writing about around 1945. Uh, it's another moment of time where you see international grassroots movements coming together. And this started 
10 or 20 years ago with the Via Campesina and uh, farmers in the developing world organizing. They were joined and, and paralleled by indigenous movements in Canada and in Latin America, landless people's movements. This is all of the people who were left out of the land redistributions of the 1945 era that I write about uh, are coming together and starting to say, uh, let's have a conversation about sustainability that includes us. Let's have a conversation about climate change that includes the very real possibility of the farmers who pr produce 85% of the food supply being ejected from where they've been living and tending the earth. Um, let's have a conversation about imagining a right to land, a right to occupancy, a right to live, a right to build a house, a right to grow your own food that encompasses uh, the vast majority of the world's poor people in Asia and Africa and Latin America, as well as in the borderlands all over North America. You write that in 1943, international delegates had assembled in Hot Springs, Virginia, to spell out the work of the future United Nations. Meanwhile, British, American, and Indian soldiers clashed with soldiers of the Third Reich, whose land settlement policies were based on the philosophy of Lebensraum, or uh, living space, the conceit that a growing German population would require more land, the subjugation of other peoples, and the creation of farms and colonized territories where German peasants would settle. Meanwhile, millions of Bengalis were starving in the latest of the famines that had plagued the subcontinent under British rule. Up to three million perished in 1943 alone. So did British imperialism cause the deaths of millions while German imperialism was killing millions? Were the enemies of the Third Reich engaging in imperialism, invasion, occupation, and subjugation, just like the Third Reich was during World War II? So it, it, they were, and it's a long story. It's a story that's been told very ably by a number of historians as well as journalists that uh, stretches back through the 18th and 19th centuries. Famine was not endemic in India over the course of the 19th century. Uh, sorry, it wasn't endemic in India before the, before the British arrived. Uh, famine became endemic in India over the course of the 19th century with death tolls of about 30 million um, over the course of the century by some estimates. Um, and the, the famines were ongoing. We now know that one of the largest famines was happening in the midst of the Second World War, even while the British were fighting against German imperialism. So all of, all of the European nations had blood on their hands for the sins of empire. All of their empires had been characterized by famine, by forced labor, labor by the enslavement of indigenous populations, uh, and by systems of uh, systems of government which were the opposite of democracy. They took political powers out of local districts. They made sure that native populations didn't have control over their uh, over their government. I'm simplifying. Um, of course, there were there were enormous debates over this over the course of the 19th century and many reform movements. But the fact is that when we arrived in 1945, and people in Germany are preaching Germany for Germans, and some people in America are preaching America for Americans, it's a very radical thing to say the earth for man. And let me translate that into a modern idiom because that sounds a bit wrong to our ears. The earth for humanity, the earth for humans, the earth for life. 
Let's have the earth for life, not America for Americans and Germany for Germans. Let's rethink all of those rules and all of those systems of government in a more inclusive way. So it's worth thinking about how that came about. It's not just charitable. It was a, it was a settlement reached at the point of misery and famine and the point of a gun with post-colonial rebellions around the world. So that's the story that I'm telling. That's why it's called a war. The title of the book is The Long Land War. And I'm talking about a century of or more of post-colonial struggles against empire in Africa, Latin America, North America, and Asia, a global struggle over the question, should empire be allowed to confiscate land rights around the globe, or should those rights remain with indigenous people, should remain with native people the world over? And uh, I think we've lost sense, uh, lost a little bit of sense in our telling of empire, of the fact of this pivot in 1945 that happens with the help of the United Nations, coordinated with, by the United Nations, which does some of the work. There's still so much left work left to do, but it does some of the work of managing a conversation about a right to occupancy the world over. And you, you write about the reality and inevitability of peasant revolution around the globe at the time. So was this an attempt to, uh, by the most powerful nations, the most wealthy nations in the world, uh, to address that inevitable revolution before it was forced on, or imposed upon uh, government leaders? Or was this something maybe even worse? Was this a co-opting of that revolution? Yeah, my story is not about a co-optation. My story is actually, uh, it's it's about the hand of Europe being forced to a degree and a compromise, which wasn't the worst of the compromises being made at the time, and actually gives us a blueprint for some pretty radical kinds of legislation and government uh, institutions that could shape the future uh, in light of the kinds of grassroots movements that are going on today. So the story that I tell is how uh, in 1945, at the end of the Second World War, the Food and Agriculture Organization, the FAO, is founded in uh, Montreal um, uh, and then moves to Rome, as you said, to be closer to the developing nations of the world. Now, we don't hear a lot about the FAO in North America. In the United States, we don't hear that much about the FAO. We, we hear about the United Nations and we hear about... Uh, the housing of refugees, we hear about UNESCO, we hear about other international organs like the World Bank. Nobody wants, nobody is talking about a world without the World Bank except crazy radicals, right? Uh, liberal institutions are fine with the World Bank, all of these organs of the UN. Well, the FAO is one of the most important institutions if you're in a developing country, especially a developing country whose production is primarily agricultural. So when the FAO is founded, who should found the FAO and who should be in charge of the FAO is a very interesting question. And the people who are appointed at the FAO are uh, you know, essentially they're left liberals from, from the United Kingdom, uh, many of whom the United Kingdom and its empire, they're Canadians, they're Australians. They have certain sympathies with being on the outskirts of empire. They're still white men, but they're white men who have been involved in conversations about hunger during the Great Depression, hunger and nutrition, uh, and plans to provide school lunches to school children. So they're, they're interested in some sort of a welfare campaign, and they can imagine a state-run institution which is supporting the people. Uh, they're also 
increasingly aware that they're living in a world which is exploding in terms of post-colonialism. I mean, Gandhi has been running his uh, rent strikes and hunger strikes and campaigns for political freedom for decades at this point. Um, he's assassinated in the first years after 1945, but his legacy goes on with other activists in India. India is newly free. Um, and then dozens of, of former imper imperial colonies in Africa uh, will claim their freedom in the decade following the Second World War. Uh, so the whole world looks like a kind of powder keg. And there are questions about how these countries will develop and will they, uh, will they come under the influence of communism? Will they come under the influence of Europe or North America? The stewards of the fowl take all of these conversations seriously. And what they hear from the post-colonial world is the post-colonial world is alarmed about the confiscations of empire. After all, when France and Germany and Belgium and uh, Great Britain went around the world claiming colonies, one of the first things that they did was to claim that they owned the land. They owned, they owned the right to tax all of India. So if India is going to be free and successful, it needs the land back. It needs, uh, all of Latin America needs the land back. And what we mean by the land back in this case is that the descendants of like the, the few families who run the haciendas across uh, Latin America, the descendants of um, uh, imperial stewards of land should not be the only landowners. Ordinary peasants should have some share of the land. So a massive... Uh, there, there's a set of ideas circulating about what I call the redistribution of land. Contemporaries would have called it agrarian reform or land reform. Um, those terms have, have accrued a lot of different meanings, so I avoid them because there are neoliberal kinds of land reform today, which look very different than this land reform a la 1945. Um, so let's just call it land redistribution. The post-colonial nations are saying, we are going to, once we get our freedom, we're going to redistribute land. And this has already happened twice in 1945. It's happened after 1881 in Ireland uh, with a series of acts which were passed as a result of gunpowder plots by Great Britain to redistribute the land of Ireland from absentee English landlords to ordinary Irish peasants. So it's happened in Ireland, totally happened in Ireland. Legislation was passed for Bengal and Scotland, but never really backed up. And then it's happened in Mexico, during the Mexican revolution with the legislation that creates the ejidos, systems of communally owned land that return land rights to, they validate indigenous land rights, they return land rights from the hacienda to ordinary, Mexican farmers to peasants. So, so this has happened twice in Mexico, in Ireland. It's about to happen in India, so far as anyone can tell, in 1945. And so when the foul arrives on the stage, the United the foul, this arm of the United Nations, this first arm of the United Nations, says, uh, we are here to support developing world agriculture. And that means we're here to support the member nations who say that they are going to redistribute land. We are going to do whatever they ask us to, to help them redistribute land. Even though we at the United Nations do not have the authority to, 
to tell Europe what to do or tell Canada what to do or tell North America and the United States what to do. We see this model of land redistribution. We think it's okay. We're going to develop infrastructure to support it. And so part of the book is about those systems of infrastructure. How do you build an institution that's going to support those post-national movements? And I say this is a really interesting thing for the information age because essentially what they build, they don't have modern supercomputers, but they build a lot of what we would call infrastructure, maybe information infrastructure. They start compiling as much information they can about the soil of all of these nations. And this is super useful, expensive information, because if you know where, where the soil is rocky and where the soil is loamy, then I can do a really equitable land redistribution, one that makes sense for ordinary people. I'm not going to give Chuck a plot of rocks and give Will a plot of really fertile land, and both of them are an acre, and I'm going to call it fine. I'm going to say Chuck is farming rocks today, so we're going to give him a lot of acres. Will is for farming loam, he's fine with one acre, and uh, maybe we'll build some irrigation to help Chuck farm the rocky soil of his plot of land. So one of the things that the United Nations is doing is it's providing soil maps. It's providing bibliographies of scientific research. It's providing experts, and not experts from the United States and Europe going to the rest of the world and telling them how to farm like us. They're providing experts where they send somebody from India to Egypt and somebody from Egypt to India to have a South-South exchange. And that's something that the, the FAO does to this day and does really well. They took seriously in 1945 the possibility of a South-South type of information system where experts from the developing world support other farmers in the developing world. And that's really revolutionary. I think we, we shouldn't, you know, it, there are a lot of things that are wrong with empire. There were a lot of things that were weird about the early United Nations, but this is, we shouldn't go so fast over this period of history that we miss the radical elements that were baked into the United Nations at its founding. So whether it was Ireland or Mexico or India or post-war uh, nations that were being decolonized. What are the conditions that led to this re-examination of colonialism? I mean, do we have to wait for another global uprising of fascism ending with the use of nuclear weapons of mass destruction in order to raise awareness of what we can all do to make everyone's life better? better? Will we come together again in the wake of another crisis? Do you think that there can be this kind of re-examination of the way in which the world is structured today due to the crisis either of the pandemic that we are still going through or the ongoing crisis of climate change? That's a, that's a really well-framed question, Chuck, because it's at the heart of this story and why this story might be relevant to us today. Uh, there are a lot of historians over the last half century, and one of them who have been writing about the history of subaltern movements, by which we mean movements of oppressed people by gender or sexuality or race. Um, and, and those those liberation stories, those self-liberation stories are so powerful to movements and they deserve to be told. But when we think about how you transform the world and world systems, world economic systems. It's also very important to watch the institutions and which institutions respond to movements from below, which institutions co-opt movements from below. And they say, yes, we're on your side and they, 
they 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 show up and they wave banners but they don't give any power they don't give them anything that helps they don't give them any money um so all of those issues were on my mind as i was writing and what i arrived at was a little surprising i i thought that i was going to be telling a story about the co-optation of social movements by these international elite organizations but what i what i arrived at was a much more complicated story about some elites some elites of the united nations being very interested and very good listeners and allies to social movements around the world. So one example is Norris Dodd. Norris Dodd is the second director general of the FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations. Um, Dodd is an American and he comes to the FAO from uh, the, the Tennessee Valley Authority where he's been involved with the New Deal and cooperative land management strategies and price controls. Um, Dodd decided as soon as he was appointed at the FAO, he wanted to go on a world tour and he wanted to actually meet leaders in the developing world and listen. It was a listening tour. So he spent um, about a year actually on the road uh, stopping and talking to world leaders. And when he was in India, he spent a lot of time talking to the followers of Gandhi about strategies to support small farmers. And one of the things that he heard there was that you know, Gandhi was responsible for a lot of thinking about technology and the, how technology represents systems of economic power. So the followers of Gandhi had thought a lot about the railroads in India. The railroads in India um, one of the were at the end uh, in 1945, they were still one of the they are still today one of the largest rail systems in the United in in world history. Even Marx thought that it was inevitable with all of those railroads that India would industrialize and become one of the richest nations on the face of the earth by the end of the 19th century. And Marx was wrong about that. Um, so the followers of Gandhi had raised this question, how is it that India can have so many railroads and still hasn't industrialized or became wealthy? And the answer, the answer was figured out by a historian named Manu Goswami, who's at NYU. Goswami says, the reason is that the railroads are essentially corrupt. There are two systems of prices. You charge one set of rates for bringing freight into India to industrialize by like bringing in iron machines. You ch ch charge a different set of rates for exporting raw materials from India, like taking the cotton out of India so that it can be finished in Manchester. The railroads are in contr the control of moneyed interests. And as a result, they are instruments of confiscation. So it's not just the infrastructure, it's how the infrastructure is run and all of the rules around the infrastructure. Technology doesn't necessarily create a rising tide that floats all boats. It depends on how who owns the infrastructure and how it's structured. So the followers of Gandhi said, we're going to reconsider large-scale investments in technology in this very poor country where famine is now endemic thanks to British empire. We think that it would be very useful 
for getting India off the ground if we invest in small-scale technology. And they're looking at things like the thousands of tiny bicycle shops, which are all over India and South Asia in 1945. There are bicycle shops everywhere, and they're owned by Indians. And those Indians make a little bit of money. And the people who own bicycles, they can, they've got a little bit of freedom to get around town and do their own business. So bicycles are an example of of small-scale technology helping small farmers, small peasants, ordinary people to work better. So the Director General of the FAO, Norris Dodd, says, this, this tells me what we need to do about our technology strategy at the FAO. We don't need to just ship plow, modern Chicago-style plows to India in order to modernize the nation. We need to send hose and buckets to India and to China. If we can empower a handful of small farmers, then they will create their own hoe and bucket factories. And then we'll create a kind of grassroots uplift in the countryside. So this is the backstory to the small is beautiful movement to E.F. Schumacher and those ideas which were later reabsorbed in North America. Some of your listeners may have heard of small is beautiful. But the, the crucial part of my history is that small is beautiful is an Indian idea. It's a poor people's idea. It's an idea about how to create an economy where everyone can participate. Everybody can, everybody can benefit from a rising tide of capitalism. And it's, it has to do with ownership of new technology. It's not about sending one laptop to every child in Africa. It's about giving small tools small tools to people who can thereby become tiny entrepreneurs and build their own interests. You write that a broad consensus in North America and Europe held that land redistribution was inevitable. The only question was whether the program executed would be capitalist or communist in nature. Why was there a belief that land redistribution was inevitable? Was land redistribution understood as a necessity if the world was going to be decolonized? Was it understood as necessary land redistribution, was that understood as necessary to end imperialism and the notion of empire? Yeah, so for, in, in 1945, in most of the world, in most of Europe, in most of the places colonized by Europe, there's a set of beliefs about how to roll back empire where land ownership is central. And uh, if we want to understand why that's so universal, it's a very interesting story, which is a little beyond what I tell in the book. But let's just say it goes back to the 1880s and the writings of American journalist Henry George. Henry George is probably the first author who creates a truly international critique of land ownership, where he draws parallels between San Francisco in the era of the telegraph and uh, India in the era of the railroads and colonial Ireland. And he says, look, in all of these places, moneyed interests of empire move in and the price of land starts to rise and the price of rent starts to rise. And then it's impossible for ordinary people to, to live. They have to move. There's massive displacement. There's massive turnover. And there was in all of these placements, uh, in all of these places. And he says, you can imagine a system of capitalism where everything can be bought and sold, except for the land. 
We're never going to make more land, so land could have special rules put around it. This is the origin of thinking about rent control. Rent control is one instance of Georgist ideas applied to land. Uh, there are also systems, different systems of property taxes, progressive systems of property taxes, where we're not going to tax you so much for your ranch house on the outskirts of Chicago, but we're going to tax you a lot for your penthouse in the middle of downtown. So there are different Georgist ideas, but George creates this set of ideas where he says, look, colonized people and poor people on the outskirts of a city are in the same position. They could be displaced from where they live very quickly just because of how capital moves. And we need to take the land question very seriously. So the land question has been debated since the 19th century. By the time we get to the end of the Second World War, there are you know, essentially land back type movements, movements for land redistribution on every continent on the face of the earth. Sometimes they look like renters movements of poor white working folk who are trying to make the city livable. Sometimes they look like nationalist movements against empire to put racial movements to return, return India uh, to people from India, return the land. But the return of the land is an absolutely central point of all of these post-colonial movements. And that's something that's disappeared in some of the history that we've been telling recent, recently about the post-colonial movements, because we've, we've there, there's so many stories to tell about empire and post-coloniality. You could tell it as a story about race, you could tell it as a story about human dignity. But land ownership is also key to a vision of, you know, we're going to have a Zimbabwe that doesn't that where the land doesn't belong to a few rich people who happen to have English descent. That's absolutely crucial to most of these post-colonial movements. And that's why in 1945, land reform looks inevitable to a lot of people. It looks inevitable to people at the United Nations. It looks inevitable to people from Washington. It looks inevitable to people in Westminster. And there's a kind of general consensus that th this, this is going to happen with or without us. It can happen in a peaceful way, in a rationalized way in which there are like their maps and their economic systems, or this can happen in the way in which it's been happening in, in Russia and China, in which there's a lot of violence and then a lot of land turnover. And that's a that's a much longer story that's um that's uh two chapters of my book about how that happens in China and Russia and what the reaction is. But uh, land, land redistribution, the slogan, the earth for man, it stands in for the idea that we can, we can promote the best and the most enlivening aspects of ideas about land redistribution while these enormous parts of the world are in transition. And indeed, we should, because it's crucial to the spread of democracy, to imagine a world in which not just the state is participatory, but also the market is participatory. Anybody can join, anybody can try. You're not going to be displaced. You're not going to lose everything. Everybody has a place where they can live. They're not going to fear displacement at the drop of a hat if they fail in, in capitalism. This is an, in, in one way, it's an existential answer to some of the riddles of a capitalist society that's distinct from capital from communism at least communism as it was realized under Stalin and Mao 
We are speaking with data scientist, writer, and historian Joe Goldie, who wrote the Boston Review essay, The Earth for Man Redistributing Land Was Once Central to Global Development Efforts, and It Should Be Today. This essay is adapted from her most recent book, The Long Land War, The Global Struggle for Occupancy Rights, which came out in 2022. You can find out more about Joe at our website, joegoldie.com, and follow Joe on Twitter at Joe Goldie. I want to ask you a couple of questions about John Boyd Orr, who's another veteran of the British crusade against hunger that you write about, uh, who also was somebody who was one of the founding people or one of the earliest uh, leaders of the FAO. You write that Orr's agenda was threefold, establishing the FAO as an independent policymaking institution capable of recommending global strategies, combating the worst consequences of poverty by supporting a worldwide food program, a world food plan, and challenging the long-term consequences of racism in Europe's former colonies. How could or how can a world food plan challenge European racism in its former colonies? Or for that matter, how could a world food plan today challenge racism anywhere? I, you know, that's an it's an excellent question. John Boyd Orr is a he's a visionary who's come out of Depression era politics in Britain. He win, wins the Nobel Prize in part for his work on food politics in Britain for essentially arguing that there should be a right to food, a universal right to food that a civilized country can afford to feed all people. This is the root of the kinds of uh, food government food programs that we have in the United States and in Canada today, think programs that pr- provide school lunches um, uh, to to school children. Um, so Bo- Boyd Orr is bound up with all of those questions. But as he's part of the, becomes part of the conversation about the FAO and a world program for dealing with food, um, the FAO the FAO enters a space where all people were talking about was markets, markets and trade and coordinating prices to make more efficient markets. And Boyd Orr, this is before the Second World War, there's a kind of fantasy that if we just have an institution in Rome and it coordinates world commodities markets, then that will automatically end hunger. By 1945, it's becoming apparent to many people that that's, that's not, it, the world doesn't work as simply as that. And Boyd Orr is the visionary who makes that argument to the United Nations, uh, to leader. He personally has conversations with leaders like Roosevelt and makes the case for a coordinating institution. This is an era that's very optimistic about the powers of institutions, about designing an institution correctly so so that everyone has a say. This is maybe something that has been lost in our era of uh, skepticism towards institutions and power of all kinds. So Boyd Orr is interested in power and institutions and shaping that correctly. And he writes this kind of manifesto of how he what he thinks should be done. And the manifesto has a triggering title, so prepare yourself. It's called The White Man's Dilemma. The White Man's Dilemma earns Boyd Orr the Nobel Prize. And it's actually a very radical text because in this book, Boyd Orr says the white man's dilemma is that he owns all of the land and he doesn't want to give it up. But if he doesn't give it up, we're going to be facing a never ending cycle of violence. We can either make the choices now and give up most of Europe's colonial holdings and 
in, in Latin America and Africa and Asia. Or never-ending cycles of violence will occur because people will be hungry. And hungry people lead to political instability and that will harm us in other ways. So white men's dilemma is putting forward as clearly as possible. What are the stakes? You know, the stakes of this battle between communism and capitalism are, are bigger than just two sets of ideas. We have to be able to imagine a world in which people have a right to food and a right to a place to live. You know, later on, people will start to talk about that as human rights. But at this period, I think what's, it's really essential that you know, most of the other human rights, like the right to an education or women's rights, they depend on being able to, first, you need to have some food and you need to have a place to live. And there's something to be said for concentrating just on those two rights. Um, so, you know, we still live in a world in which many people, even in the United States, even in Canada, go hungry. Um, we still live in a world in which small farmers in the developing world cannot count on food security. Uh, beginning 10, 20 years ago, we were hearing about farmer suicides uh, south of the border of the United States, farmer suicides of farmers who had made what was considered to be the right investment for the time. And they were killing themselves because they literally could not make a living. They literally could not feed their families. Um, so these issues are still very live. They're still causing mass displacement. They're still the subject of uh, grassroots agitation all across the global south. Um, some of the authors who write about this very intelligently include my friend Raj Patel, so I would follow up with him uh, for a conversation about the food politics of today. You also quote or writing in White Man's Dilemma, the natives of Asia, Africa, and Latin America would become the equals of the white man. And as these continents become industrialized, the Europeans and their descendants, the Americans would lose the control of the world they gained in their 300 years of conquest from the 17th to the 19th century. This, then, is the white man's dilemma. He can attempt by force to maintain military and economic supremacy, the final outcome of which will be the downfall of Western civilization. Or, on the other hand, he can join the human family and use his present industrial supremacy to develop the resources of the earth to put an end to hunger and poverty with resulting worldwide economic prosperity. This is really important to remember. Again, this is back in the 1950s. So, Joe, is Western civilization today in threat of collapse because Western empires are using force to maintain military and economic supremacy that they obtained through colonialism and imperialism? Is it a desperate attempt to save Western domination leading to its own civilizational collapse? Oh, Chuck, it's great to hear you read aloud those those words from John Boyd Orr, uh, because, you know, essentially, Boyd Orr is being very crafty here. He's saying to Roosevelt, to, um, to the leaders of the UK, the leaders of Europe, and the leaders of the post-colonial world, look, there's a gun to our head. Do we want to live through never-ending cycles of violence so that we can increase our capital flow by a little bit? Uh, you know, I, I hear those words and I immediately think about climate change. I think the scientists have already said there is a gun to our head. We can continue to pursue revenue on the, stand, on the model that we pursued it already, or we need to adapt. 
What we haven't seen is the kind of leadership that John Boyd Orr showed after 1945 um, with explaining to world leaders and explaining to journalists again and again the importance of this moment of time and the real possibility of creating a world institution. It's not just marches. It's not just grassroots movements. It comes out of that. But the response, the, where those marches go, is the devolution of power. It's power to the people via institutions that can support actual transfer of land and farmers growing their own food successfully. That requires some science. It requires some information. It requires some South-South exchanges. But it requires some coordinating power. So John Boyd Orr was the kind of visionary who could move from a gun to our, is to our head. We must change something about the system of capitalism to here is the blueprint for the kind of global institution which could enable economic participation for everyone and political participation. And it will stop the possibility of never-ending cycles of violence by defeating their root cause, by defeating poverty and hunger and displacement. So, you know, I, I feel I feel a little agitated um, when I when I read contemporary journalism, um, which presses the panic response, a gun to us to our head in terms of climate change. It most certainly is. Um, and there's all of this inaction, but then doesn't hold up the candle in the room doesn't turn on the light to help us imagine what kind of an institution would get us out. Because in the absence of designing a new institution, all we have is the stock exchange, the World Bank. And they are not creative institutions. They are not institutions that are about the, devo the devolution of power. So if you'd like to read more about that, I have written um, a, an article in the journal Climactic Change in which I tried to imagine what a world government of land would look like today, which took indigenous, indigenous rights seriously and the labor of indigenous activism seriously uh, in order to protect all of us from pollution and displacement, uh, to protect the people of the world from hunger and warfare. Um, it's my my own attempt. There are other people, uh, of course, in the climate movement who are trying to imagine this kind of institution. But I think it it is so vital right now that we embrace the utopianism that was present in the 1940s and 1950s with this kind of initiative and use it as a way to guide us in this moment when we have a lot of grassroots voices saying we're in trouble. There is a gun to our head. And yet we seem to be in a moment of paralysis, institutional paralysis, where little seems to shift. Does land distribution, redistribution, Joe, does that mean the end of private property as we understand it today? Because back in May, uh, we had climate justice activists. I mentioned this earlier, climate justice activist, post-colonial scholar, writer Ashley Dawson, uh, back on the show to talk about his new book that he co-edited, co Decolonized uh, Conservation. In that book, he cites Eve Tuck and Wayne Yang, whose essay, Decolonization is Not a Metaphor, arguing that decolonization eliminates settler property rights and settler sovereignty. It requires the abolition of land as property and upholds the sovereignty of native land and people. So do we need to give up land as property, land as commodity, land as privately held to bring about equality and fairness, as well as a physical and political environment best suited for direct democracy? 
Yeah, I think, you know, I think it's... <laughs> They're, they're, it's so exciting to hear people talking about this because 10 years ago, nobody was talking about land back. Nobody was talking about um, what the consequences of climate change might be for housing and for indigenous property rights and for First Nations. Um, and, and and then we we live through Standing Rock and uh, we li we're living through these, these beautiful flourishing grassroots movements. And I, I take a lot of delight in, in seeing them. I... I wanted to do this service in the long land war of just just patiently stepping through what that might mean, the guide of history. Technically, what might that mean? I'm on board with post-colonial movements saying empire stole a lot of land and we've got to give it back. That's been going on for 100 years. That is right. We're talking about it. We're talking about it in relationship to slavery in North America. And that's a huge deal. Uh, one of the things that you'll that I, I started to understand as I was writing the story is that um, North America is actually probably the continent that's furthest behind in these conversations. The United States likes to think of itself as a thought leader and a political leader uh, in terms of justice for the, the entire world. But for the period from 1945, the United States is not running the conversation. It's not at the forefront of these conversations about post-colonialism and land redistribution. And there are actually periods of time, especially in the 1960s and 1970s, when the United States is a regressive force stopping land redistribution movements, silencing activists, including native activists in the United States, activists of color like African-Americans, Latinos in New Mexico. I tell some of those stories in, in the Long Land War. The United States is one of the places where the Long Land War is essentially lost during the 60s and the 70s. It's going way better in places and other in Latin, further to the south in Latin America. And that's one of the reasons that the native activists who were at Alcatraz uh, Island in San Francisco Bay in 19, is it 1973, why they, why they are inspired to make those claims about indigenous land rights um, is because they're inspired by what's happening in contemporary Peru, where indigenous Quechua movements are stomping into the courtroom to demand land or death, tierra o muerte. Um, so, we start to see that there's this really powerful global nexus of grassroots movements. So does, does land redistribution, let me come back to your question because it's a great question. Does land redistribution mean that we're not going to have private property rights? Uh, not the land redistribution methods that I hear talk about in the long land war. So in the book, I go through all of these movements and the ones that are affiliated with the United Nations and then all of these grassroots movements that come, come to light in places like Peru and India uh, and indigenous movements in Alcatraz and the Beaver and Cree people in Canada. Um, so I'm naming a lot of different movements that take different shape through the, the course of telling this story. What most of them want um, is, is a series of concessions that acknowledge the reality of multiple legal systems on the same place. And that's a very complex thing to do for a court to deal with from the get-go, multiple legal systems in the same place. So you think about the Beaver and Cree people of Canada, um, their ancestors have lived uh, on this land for hundreds of years. 
and they have no written documentation of that. But what they have is a language that's filled with place names. And the place names embody stories. They embody a notion of occupancy, which is to say they live in one place. So that's a kind of property right, but it's not an exclusive property right. It means you, maybe you can share part of this property with me. We started to understand these overlapping property rights in the 1960s and the 1970s for the first time, really. And then in the 1980s and 1990s, as anthropologists started, anthropologists and geog geographers from the university started to hang out with these native movements who were making their claims in court. And the anthropologists, the historians, the geographers, the journalists who went there, they started to ask, well, what does this mean? What does it mean to have a non overlapping property right? And as we started to ask that question, we started to realize that these non-overlapping property rights were everywhere. They were in, they were in Africa, they were in Latin America. They're not just one native tribe uh, in, in the middle of Canada. They're, they're all over Asia. And in fact, they existed in Ireland. They existed in Switzerland. They existed in many parts of Europe. It's very common to have something called communal property or a commons. So that, that word is a lot more familiar to listeners now than it would have been 50 years ago. Uh, and that's in part due to the work of uh, political scientist Eleanor Ostrom, the first woman to win the Nobel Prize in economics. Ostrom's research compiled case after case after case of commonly owned land and the rules that Native people put into place. Before Ostrom, it had been commonplace to dismiss any kind of Native land ownership or collective land ownership as automatically destined for fa failure. So the writings of Garrett Hardin, um, a Dallas-based uh, animal management specialists suggest coined the phrase tragedy of the commons. And Hardin argued that it was unnatural to have a system where many people over use the same piece of land or own the same piece of land in common. Because what would happen would be I would graze my cow, you would graze your cow, and then more cows would come and eventually the cows would eat all of the grass, the cows would die, and then we would die. Hardin says, a tragedy of the commons. So what happens is Eleanor Ostrom comes along and she says, huh, I don't know if that's right. And she starts collecting all of these cases. And there are all of these other anthropologists and geographers who have started going to, to native elders and saying, well, we don't know. We don't know what this is really like. Could you tell us about what you're trying to document for the courts in Canada to prove in Canada to prove that you own this piece of property. And they write down all of these examples and they compare them. And ultimately, Eleanor Ostrom writes the book that earns her a Nobel Prize in which she says, common pool systems exist the world over and they are very intelligent and they don't produce a tragedy of the commons where we all starve to death because there are rules, because people can talk to each other and they can make a rule. Like we can have no more than 12 cows on this piece of land. They make that rule when they're fishing. They make that rule when they're cutting down trees in the forest. We can have common systems. So it's only in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s that American academia starts getting smarter 
that Western court systems start getting smarter, smart enough, smart enough to realize that you can have something called indigenous title, where there is a certain set of rules for owning a piece of property or acknowledging that indigenous people have certain rights to talk about this piece of land, um, where there's this, we can talk about owning the forest in a way that many people can use it. We can talk about fishery systems in the Atlantic and the Pacific, where many people are allowed to fish, but there are rules. As we start to get smarter, we start to imagine something that is not, it's not 19th century capitalism, the way, the way uh, Ricardo, David Ricardo imagined it, where there's one piece of land and one person standing on it. This isn't Lockean capitalism. It's not white imperial capitalism. I own this piece of land, you have to leave. It might still be capitalism. It's not that all of the land is owned by the state, but now there are multiple pieces of property overlapping. And we can imagine systems of ownership where I'm allowed to own this house, but there's a right to homeownership in our nation. And that means that the state has the right to buy my front yard because I'm not doing anything with it. And maybe they're going to plant an ADU there. So there's going to be more housing for the families that can't afford housing in a housing crisis. So I'm extrapolating now from the history. A right to housing, an occupancy right, gives the state permission to say certain things about how you build your house. And the state says certain things already. You've got to have a sewer. You've got to have bathrooms. Uh, you can't have an overcrowded dwelling. Well, we can think about systems of capitalism where there are also rules about how property is owned and managed. And we can think about that with regards to right, a right to housing, with regards to indigenous rights, with regards to pollution, to the air and the water as commons that we all have to protect. I think that there's a lot to draw on. Um, so I think I would agree with uh, your authors, with Eve Tuck and Wayne Yang, um, when they argue that decolonization means taking seriously the history of property rights. And I would just say that it's really useful to know about the details of these struggles over the last half century, because there's so many useful stories to tell us about what a what a constructive participatory conversation might look like in which indigenous rights and climate survival and occupancy rights, the right to housing, where all of that is on the table, all of that is being managed appropriately, actively, not just a pipe dream, but it becomes part of how cities, states, and nations, and the world manage our right to land. We have been speaking with data scientist, writer, and historian Joe Goldie, who wrote the Boston Review essay, The Earth for Man, Redistributing Land, was once central to global development efforts, and it should be today. This essay is adapted from her most recent book, The Long Land War, The Global Struggle for Occupancy Rights, which came out in 2022. You can find out more about Joe at joegoldie.com. And you can follow Joe on Twitter at Joe Goldie. That's J-O-G-U-L-D-I. One last question for you, Joe. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. In your writing, you 
describe colonialism as not only exploiting peoples, but mercilessly extracting resources, exporting food in times of famine. It not only spreads exploitation, misery, inequality, and environmental destruction, but famine and spreads all those things globally. That's what happened during the age of colonialism and in many cases still continues today. So what message was the West sending to the colonized peoples about liberty, freedom, and democracy if they were simultaneously spreading destruction, misery, exploitation, so their citizens grew fat on exported food while locals starved? Is the reason they hate us over 500 years of colonialism? It's, you know, it's a heartbreaking story. Um, I've been teaching the history of uh, Britain's colonization of India at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas, uh, for the last the last five years. Um, and I've been telling my my students about this these stories about famine. Famine is not endemic to India, and then famine becomes endemic to India, and then millions upon millions of uh, individuals die in the process. And and the response from the British state is largely with certain ex- exceptions, just heartbreaking. Let's create concentration camps. Let's create a, an archipelago of barbed wire camps. Um, and uh, we'll shove all of the indigenous people there. We'll shove in there anybody who asks for help because they're starving. And there are pictures from the Bengal famine of the late 19th century that showed these emaciated victims that looked like they've just escaped from a concentration camp. And this this story about famine as a result of land theft is repeated again and again uh, as you look over the history of colonialization in North America, Latin America, Asia, and Africa. Uh, India case is just the one that I've been telling my students about. Now, Southern Methodist University is in my hometown, Dallas, Texas, which is where I'm talking to you from. Um, And the student base of uh, SMU is, it's diverse, but politically it tends to be, it tends to veer right. Um, This is a university which is well known for its business school, uh, which appears in the book to serve God and Walmart as the embodiment of the Walmart mentality of let's downsize um, strip workers of all protections and uh, and create a strong managerial class to make sure that workers have as few rights as possible. So I have a lot of students who have, they've been reading about the free market. They've been promised that downsizing will make everybody rich. It's, the, it's what God wants. In some versions, they often haven't heard indigenous perspectives. They probably often, they usually aren't as aware of grassroots perspectives as students who I've taught on the West Coast or the East Coast or, or in Chicago. Um, so these, these students uh, are new to the conversation about colonialism. If they studied the period of colonialism in school, it was likely that they heard about it, um, a very sanitized version of it, uh, which was about the spread of Christianity by missionaries. Um, the spread of democracy, the spread of liberalism. Uh, so we we unpack that one item at a time. We move through each of those items. We talk about uh, the censorship of the press, uh, the stifling of the newspaper, 
in India. The same thing was happening in contemporary Ireland. We talk about um, the stifling of, of democracy, local rule. Uh, so we talk about um, how long it took for Indians to get the votes and how little Indians were part of the civil service. We talk about the, the entire debate over that. Um, and we talk about these famines and the famines are really, you know, seeing the pictures of the emaciated bodies of the dead are really where most, the, the heart of most of my students started to get awakened and they were able to step back from whatever, whatever simple, simpler stories they had absorbed in their childhood and say, oh gosh, we're talking about, we're talking about real lives here. We're talking about real lives here, and it is very important to know the fact of history. We're not just talking about ideas. Ideas are part of it. We're talking about decades of actual facts about systems that murder people and systems that allow for relatively more human flourishing. So I emphasize to my students, and I would emphasize to listeners, this is, this is the value of knowing your history. It is, history is a repository of facts. Historians want to know what the facts are and where they came from. They scrutinize every piece of information, every source for those facts. They don't take another, uh, they don't take the word of rumor or the word of a colleague for granted. They inspect every piece of paper. They turn over every stone in order to give you an account of what really happened and who suffered. And it often requires, the reading of history, the writing of history, often requires changing your mind about what the best institutions are for today and what we need to do. Joe, it has been an immense pleasure having you on today's show. We have been speaking with data scientist, writer, and historian Joe Goldie, author of the book Long Land War, The Global Struggle for Occupancy Rights. Follow her on Twitter at Joe Goldie. Check out uh, her website at joegoldie.com. Thank you so much for being on our show. This has been an absolutely fascinating conversation, and I truly appreciate it. It's a, it's a real pleasure, Chuck. Thank you so much. I'm wishing you all the best. All right. Take care. Thank you, Joe. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. And if no other media outlet is going to witness the grief of half a millennia of empires, today's wealthiest nations getting wealthy off stealing land from others, then exploiting the people in their land, and what can be done about correcting this grievous historic injustice, then if nobody else is going to do it, I guess we have to. And if you would, if you like what you just, if you believe or whatever, just learn something about the prospect for land redistribution from our talk with Joe Goldie, if you feel like you yet again not only learned something but realized, yes, this is hell, show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which goes live on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Chicago time, or you can show your support for a completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. Will, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is what disease, disorder, or syndrome will Chuck come down with next? Over on Facebook, we have a bunch of answers. 
Ray O says, I just want next to be a long, long, long time in the future. Yes, I agree with that. Amen, Ray. Uh, Tom W says, Anarchism. <laughs> Fabio L, Ethical Consumption. Adam A, Athlete's Foot. Uh, Pete, old friend of the show, China Syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Sometimes I feel my innards are experiencing a China syndrome. <laughs> Quite a meltdown going on in there. Uh, Scott P. Havana syndrome. All right. Um, John T. Termites. <laughs> Tom G. Augmented reality derangement syndrome by proxy. <laughs> by proxy. I like the by proxy yeah. part. <laughs> um, uh, Christopher B. Trump derangement syndrome. Okay. And then over on Twitter, we have a gif of a bee that looks intoxicated. <laughs> and it, the caption is a bad case of the bee's knees. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that one. Um, Adi says... Icy size syndrome. syndrome. <laughs> All right. uh, hypocrite reader has the cover of Lenin's uh, "The Infantile Sickness of Leftism in Communism." Right. That would make a great raffle prize. It sure would. And Mike the Giga Grouch responds: Upon regaining consciousness from his next surgery, Chuck will be stricken with Pollyanna syndrome and experience overwhelming and insufferable optimism. <laughs> that does sound insufferable. It does. Any more, or is that it? Uh, that's it on those platforms. Oh, and there's one, a few on Discord. Um, Kim G, <laughs> Dance Fever. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Uh, Kim G coming back strong after sating the dog tooth. Exactly. <laughs> uh, EXE0422 says... Bader-Meinhof complex. <laughs> you know, I had to look that up. Yeah, what is that? So, uh, I was thinking of the Bader-Meinhof gang. Okay, so okay. I was like, what the hell? Uh, for those like me who did not know the reference Erica makes, uh, the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon refers to the false impression that something happens more frequently than it actually does. This often occurs when we learn something new. Suddenly, this new thing seems to appear more frequently when in reality, it's only our awareness of it that has increased. But it's just, you're just aware that it's happening more that would undermine the Bader-Meinhof syndrome. Mm. Anyway, so there you go. That's what that is. Anymore? Yeah, Hugh on Discord as well says whatever Howard Hughes had, but the poor version instead. Yep. And Rudolph says a hangover. <laughs> so uh, the person with our favorite answer uh, wins their choice of This Is Hell merch. You can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Uh, keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. If you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to our weekly Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell this week on Patreon. Here in the States, campaigning politicians are deeply concerned that the U.S. is is a divided country. But why? What's so wrong with differing opinions, especially in what is supposed to be a democracy? What's with all the anguish over there being more than one way of thinking in a country with over 330 million people doing some thinking, you'd assume? Throw in the aggressive repetition of the we are divided theme, and it clearly sets us into two camps. And that's it. Absolutely no more. Two's the limit. 
However, when there are only two choices, there's not only the false impression that we do have a choice, but there's also the ease of which only two parties can be bought with many major donors and their beneficiaries funding both to hedge their bets. Besides, the two parties really aren't that different from each other. Hell, according to both sides, we'd all be better off with bipartisanism and one big happy party. The two sides have always lamented any divide, so again, why do the two parties in the media fret over the divide they repeatedly insist exists that seems to benefit both and dominates their messaging? Why be upset about the divide when it clearly benefits both sides? In fact, it would seem we, the public, have been the victims of a divide-and-conquer campaign by the two parties with cooperation from the press that has divided us far more than their wildest dreams could have ever imagined and divided us into this hellish nightmare that we have today. Also on Patreon, during the show last week, we announced that on Patreon, we would be sharing a June 14th, 2008 interview with John Bowe, author of Nobodies, Modern American Slave Labor and the Dark Side of the New Global Economy. However, we didn't play that conversation because Will was rifling through all the old recordings in the vault and stumbled upon a 2013 interview with one of last week's guests, Nick Terse, who had been on 10 years ago to talk about the history of U.S. violence globally from the post-war period up into the present day. So, as we promised to do last week, we actually will do this week, and that is share our 2008 talk with John Bowe on his investigation into modern-day slavery during globalization. Again, like I mentioned last week, he's also the co-screenwriter of the 1996 movie Basquiat, and I try to compliment him on that movie, and it fails miserably. But the only way you can hear my best guess as to why we are constantly being told we are divided by the most powerful people with the most funded soapboxes and a 15-year-old conversation on slave labor and the new globalized economy is by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Coming up, Jeff with the moment of truth, the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell, and we will be announcing this week's winner. We'll also tell you what's happening on next week's show. Live from Hangover Country, This Is Hell, Will... We're running really, really late, but who cares? I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do. The Svelte Universe of Sarah Lee, Part 1. There once lived a scientist named Ludwig Boltzmann. In some sense, he still exists, though not in the same form nor the same location as during his heyday. He wanted to describe the thermodynamic process of entropy using statistical mathematics, and he succeeded. This so-called arrow of time points in the direction of greater entropy and extrapolating from Boltzmann's explanation of the second law of thermodynamics has led cosmological physicists to posit the heat death of the universe in the far future. Not such a happy ending. But it has always bugged me that so much weight and privilege is given to the dissipation of energy in a system when there is such an obvious principle of increasing complexity making new things in the universe all the time. It's just a feeling. 
a gut feeling. I don't have the intellectual tools to actually figure out anything useful concerning this creative principle. I recently read an essay out of the Santa Fe Institute. Time is an object that has made me giddy and I'm eager to express it. Be aware that I'll be taking science writing by an actual astrobiologist and theoretical physicist, which she wrote for lay readers with a chemist and translating it through my giddy demeanor into something more simplistic and probably error-riven. Speaking of which, there's an apparently satirical idea I've been taking seriously until being corrected this very morning. Given infinite time and space, in a universe in a state of total entropy or heat death, a spontaneous collision would eventually result in particles accidentally assembling themselves into a universe, or even just a human brain. That randomly constructed brain, called a Boltzmann brain, is now, thanks to the theory I read about, almost infinitely more unlikely to come into being. But as the whole thing's just a joke, no one but me need to be embarrassed. The authors of the essay in question, Sarah Walker and Lee Cronin, I'll call them Sarah Lee for short, write about what they call assembly theory. It's a theory that potentially unifies evolutionary biology with quantum and cosmological physics, great scientific realms that haven't traditionally gone great together. Speaking mathematically, but in words, because numbers elude me, even a mere protein making up a tiny part of a lonely, accidental space brain cannot just come together randomly, because if you made every combination of amino acids already complex objects, by pure chance, you would need an exponentially bigger universe to contain all the combinatory mistakes in a hit or miss process. Amino acids have to have a memory. In fact, they are the memory of how to make copies of themselves and come together as proteins. That's one of the ways you know life exists. To quote Sarah Lee, Life is evident when the space of possibilities is so large that the universe must select only some of that space to exist. The number of selective steps to learn how to make the memory of a protein is called that protein's assembly index, and from the repeated appearance of the assembled protein, a scientist arrives at its copy number. An object's assembly index and its copy number are combined using math to derive its size or depth in time, a value called A for assembly. Assembly value or assembly number is different from assembly index. Assembly index and copy number together give the assembly number. The assembly index of a molecule, by the way, can be detected experimentally using various methods of spectrometry and spectroscopy. If the assembly index is 15 or higher, meaning it took 15 steps of selective assembly learning to make the molecule, that molecule was the result of biological evolution, memory rather than chance. So theoretically, you could aim a spectrometer at an exoplanet and see if it had anything on it with an assembly index of 15 or higher, meaning evolution was required to bring it into being. Life can be detected by measuring an aspect of the depth of an object's time, even truly alien life. The main point being that it took time for the universe to make particles first, 
that could form into stars, that could then make the heavier elements, that could subsequently come together to make the molecules that made life. And it all had to happen in that order. So the direction of time from past to future isn't an illusion coming out of how humans perceive entropy increasing. It's inherent in the nature of matter and how it develops. Next time, more about the implications of assembly theory. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. <laughs> that noise I'm hoping was not your stomach. <laughs> hey, Chuck. Yes. Do you have jock barnacles? <laughs> no, I've got Bildrot. Well, you don't have jock barnacles. You can thank me because I <laughs> predicted that you would, and my predictions never, never come true. true. <laughs> so you're welcome. <laughs> Oh, Jeffy, it's always... Hey, we came in. We came in on time. No, kind of. 9.29. No, because you were only an hour yesterday. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. Oh, look at that. We are totaling up right around the exact amount of time. And look at that. Who knew? Look at that. All I have to oh, do my is God. I think I'm good luck. All right, sir. Until <laughs> next week. What? Stay beautiful. Okay, part two next week. <laughs> this is not the media. This is Hell, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our stuff at thisishell.com. When you click on support, Will, please remind us, what is this week's question from Hell? And share the rest of our listeners' answers. This week's question from Hell is, what disease, disorder, or syndrome will Chuck come down with next? And we have two final posts on Patreon. Chris B. responds, Due to an unfortunate misunderstanding on Mel's part, Chuck gets a case of cat scratch fever and realizes to his horror that despite Ted Nugent's execrable politics and personality, the dude did rock back. In the day. <laughs> he hasn't done anything good since he left the Amboy Dukes. No, I agree. <laughs> and uh, see you next Tuesday, responds CDO. It's like OCD, but it needs to be in alphabetical order. <laughs> uh, some strong candidates. Uh, so, yeah, the answers I liked the most were, and uh, tell me if you agree with any of these, Will, uh, Essential saying sobriety, Chance saying Bildrot, Nate the Great, Stockholm Syndrome after one of the producers takes over. Justin, you sent an excellent answer to the question from hell. But you recently won. I'm going to read it anyway. Justin writes, In a freak accident, Chuck will fall down a manhole and discover an amulet, granting him the power to predict the outcome of all cockfights. This will make him a disgustingly wealthy, blind, bitter, gap-toothed radio show host, although he will soon leave radio to pursue his dream of, and I can't believe Justin got this right, a tracksuit empire. Unfortunately, after a little more than a decade of decadence, Chuck will develop a severe case of affluenza and will be trampled to death by penguins while trying to shake his claim to beachfront property in Antarctica. Absolutely outstanding answer, Justin. That is some thick description. Keith T. says the next disorder, disease, or syndrome I will have is ennui. <laughs> Riley says... Whatever happens when his lucky hat falls off the shelf? <laughs> Brayden says, Ergophobia, fear of work. Public Universal Comrade says, PMS, Chuck's hypochondria is just that powerful. 
<laughs> I liked Fabio saying ethical consumption and John T saying termites. Any of those really stick out to you, Will? Oh, man. It's a, it's a, it's a strong field. Yeah. I don't know, man. I mean... I like the brevity yeah, ones, you know? The brev- they're just... Bam. Now, yeah. Justin's is really good, too. Mm. All right. I'm going to go with... Uh, this is tough. This is really it's really tough. tough. All right. Let's just go with... Uh, oh, God. Let's just say, Public Universal Comrade, you are the winner of this week's question from Hal for answering... That the next disease, disorder, or syndrome I will have is PMS. <laughs> Chuck's yeah. hypochondria is just that powerful. Congratulations. <laughs> just tell us what piece of This Is Hell swag you want from what is available at thisishell.com when you click on support. Send us your mailing address and we will get your prize in the meal in the mail or meal post haste. My answer to this week's question from Hell, what disease, disorder, or symptoms or syndrome will uh, Chuck come down with next? Uh, it is what Justin actually said my inside information says affluenza when wealthy young people experience malaise lack motivation feel guilty and isolated but without the fun parts of being young and wealthy thanks to everyone who sent in an answer to this week's question from hell will who have we confirmed to be on next week's this is hell back-to-back days we will have guests on from scalawag magazine First, on Monday, we'll speak with Micah Herskind about his article, This is the Atlanta Way, a primer on Cop City. Micah Herskind is an organizer and writer based in Atlanta. And then on Tuesday, we have Miliako Nwabwizi, talks about her essay, How to Build an End of the World, or How to Build the End of the World. In defense of chaotic of the chaotic protester. This bio at Scalawag is awesome. Can you read it to yes. us? According to her Scalawag bio, Miliaku is a chaos orchestrator, glitch enthusiast, and constellation architect born in Detroit, rooted in Atlanta, can but but, be, but can be found tinkering away in the expanse of liminality. She is queer, black, and Igbo and writes, designs, and dances towards the endings of the world, of this world. Relationships are her medium. (laughs) That is an outstanding bio. I can only hope to be described similarly someday. Yes. Uh, And then finally, we wrap up next week with Alex Hinton, who will have a conversation about his Sapiens article, Two Myths Fueling the Conservative Right's Dangerous Transphobia. Alex is Distinguished Professor of Anthropology, Director of the Center for of, for the Study of Genocide and Human Rights and UNESCO Chair on Genocide Prevention. Wow. That's a, How the hell did we book that guy? Yeah, no, no kidding. <laughs> We're going to have to <laughs> clean up a little bit. Exactly. I'm going to have to wear a tie. As always, we will try yet again to have a live past inside the present with Sebastian Vupper, but I just got an email from him saying that he's not going to be around on Monday, uh, so stay tuned for that. There will be This Week in Rotten History from Ronaldo Magaldi, and Jeff Dorchin is going to deliver yet another brilliant moment of truth, part two from today. Huge thank you to all of this week's producers, Kat Jarvin and Dan Kugler, Will Ippen. Thanks to Jeff, Ronaldo, Sebastian, and to Dan Hill, Richard Norwood, Alexander Jerry, and Theron Hummiston, just because. 
talk to you tomorrow, Thursday, on Patreon. Patreon.com slash this is hell when we will look deep into the American divide, which the powers that be both love and hate. We also share a we will also share a 15-year-old interview on slavery and the new economy. Hang out with me every Wednesday night during This Is Hell Office Hours, our weekly meet and greet that's really a drink and think. And if you do, I'll give you a book just for showing up. It all starts around 6 p.m. every Wednesday evening at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. Drop by, hang out, enjoy the beer garden, have a drink. If you want, I'll glad to give you a tour of our studios. There's still a lot of the art show still up. If you're interested in possibly becoming a producer on the show, uh, we can talk about that or anything you want to chat me up about. That's This Is Hell Office Hours every Wednesday evening beginning at around 6 at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue. But a special scheduling announcement. Tonight's Wednesday, June 14th office hours is our last until the 5th of July, the day after the 4th of July, as I will be following my surgeon's advice and isolating prior to my upcoming medical procedure. So if you are listening to this live stream or you're listening to this podcast, office hours tonight, Wednesday, June 14th, and we're back at it on the day after the 4th of July on Wednesday, July 5th. And don't forget, in fact, you know, write it down and start making plans now. The This Is Hell 27th Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party and art opening of This Is Art, including live music, good food, a raffle, and like I said, an art opening, happens on Saturday, July 22nd, beginning at 3 p.m., 3 in the afternoon, and running all day and night at the bar downstairs, again, from where I'm sitting right now, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue. Saturday, July 22nd, 3 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we have introduced to you on this week's show, and that's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.